Good morning. Hey, it's a great day. I know it's rainy outside and it's terrible, but uh, it's so good to be in here. It's so good to be together and so glad that we can worship together and sing these songs together. Uh, man, it's so great to have DJ and the worship team lead us. Thank you guys. Man, it's just been great. Sometimes I wish I didn't have to speak and we could just sing the whole time. And you probably feel the same way, but uh, I'm glad. I'm glad we can, we can be here and be together this morning. Uh, if you've been tracking with us, we're doing this series called Who's On First? And we'll get to that in just a moment. But today is a special day because it's, it's senior celebration. And we've got a lot of seniors and their families with us. And guys, we're glad you're here. And we're looking forward to honoring you today and then even more tonight. And uh, it's just a great day. And, you know, as a church family, I always think that that this day that we take to honor our seniors is really just a special day in the life of our church. Because uh, a lot of you, uh, you remember when some of these guys were born. Uh, you taught them in class. Uh, you went on their retreats. Uh, you've, you've been there. You've prayed with them. You've taught them. You've loved them. You've chaperoned their mission trips. Um, you've been to their ball games. And today is just a great day as we get to see you guys step in and get ready to step into the next phase of your life. And as a church family, it's just a great day that we can honor you and honor your family. So we're we're really grateful for today. It's a really special day in the life of this church, and we're thankful. Thankful for you guys and thankful for this, for this moment. Uh, the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about this idea of who's on first. It's, uh, it's baseball season, if you didn't know, and that's why I walked on stage with a, wap, a, a weapon of mass destruction here. I promise I'll only use this for good. Uh, and so it's baseball season. The Rangers, did they win again last night? I think they did. And so that's a good thing. We're excited about that. And um, uh, we've been talking about this for a couple of weeks. We talked about it uh, a couple of weeks ago. We said, um, you put God on first uh, when, you, when you pray. And that's one of the ways we put God on first. Last week, we talked about this idea that uh, we put God on first when we forgive. And some of you, uh, some of you helped us out and put a, a picture or two on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. And we'll show a couple of those. We had this one. I think Sherry uh, Potter put this up, this, uh, this forgiven picture that, uh, that we love, reminding everyone that we forgive, this idea of being forgiven. And then my favorite is the next one. I think uh, Megan Bulls, our very own, uh, created this. Isn't that beautiful? And so, uh, yeah, it's awesome. I love that. And uh, really, really cool reminders uh, that in Christ, uh, we are forgiven. And one of the ways we put God on first is when we forgive. And so we'll talk more about that uh, today as we get going. Some of you, if you're a baseball fan, you may know the name uh, Stan Musial. You know this name? Stan the Man is what, maybe how he was better known. Played for the St. Louis Cardinals. Now I know that some of you uh, are not Cardinals fans, so forgive me for that. But Stan played back in the day. He played uh, from 1941 to 1963. He was a member of the St. Louis Cardinals. And he was probably best known uh, for his bat. And, and I could tell you a lot about his career. I could tell you lots of stats and bore you to tears with, with Stan the man and all of his stats and all the, the ways that he, he did good things for the game. But here's, here's just one thing I want to share with you that I think is absolutely remarkable about Stan the man, Stan Musial. Uh, when he played for the Cardinals for those 20 plus years, he, he was incredible at the plate. And after he retired, they looked back over the history of, of his game and they found out that, that he had the exact same number of hits at home playing in St. Louis as he did away at other stadiums. In fact, at home he had 1,815 hits where he hit safely and got to first base at least. And away he had 1,815 hits where he hit safely and got to first base. In other words, he was the same. He was extremely consistent whether he was at home or away. He had an incredible knack for getting on base. And I think it's incredible that he had the exact same number of hits at home as he did away. He was incredibly, incredibly consistent. He was, incre he was somebody you could trust. The manager could trust him when he put him up uh, to the plate to, to get on base. 
Uh, one of my sons, some of you guys know my son is a, is a, is a huge baseball fan, loves the game of baseball. Uh, and one of his favorite players is a guy by the name of Andrelton Simmons. Now, Simmons isn't much with a bat, I'll tell you that. But he's incredible with his glove, with his glove. He's an incredible defensive player. He's a shortstop. He came up through the Braves organization. So when we lived in Atlanta, he was one of our favorite players to watch play the game, play shortstop. Uh, just this last season, sadly, he was traded to the Angels. Uh, but he is, he is absolutely incredible to watch and so much fun to watch. Uh, playing shortstop. Um, he's, he's somebody that uh, over the past, he's only played four seasons, but over those past four seasons, he's already won two gold gloves, and you could argue he could win four. He's that, he's that good. In fact, I, I can't commit them all to memory, but let me just read you some of the stats uh, for Andrelton Simmons and see if this doesn't just amaze you the way it does me. So over the, fast, over the past four seasons, he has 113 defensive runs saved. Now that, that means he saved that many runs from happening. That's 21 more than the player with the next most. And get this, it's 71 more than the, the, than the next best shortstop, all right? So you could argue over the past four seasons, he's been three times as good as anybody else at his position. If that doesn't impress you, hear this. Simmons is obviously best at getting those ground balls or those, those balls that go into the shortstop hole there or third base. Over the past four seasons, he rates 83 plays above average on balls hit to that area. That means that, that he made 83 more plays than the average fielder would be expected to make. Now, the next best shortstop... Uh, has, has 42 plays above average. So even in that spot, he's at least twice as good over the past four seasons as anybody else that plays the same position. He's absolutely amazing. And one of the coolest things about watching him play is that even when he doesn't get the ball, he's extremely good at backing up almost everybody on the field. The guy probably runs 20 miles a game. He's all over the field, whether the ball's coming his way or not, to back up the other players on the field. I've seen him back up second base and back up third base. He's gone out to the outfield and he's made plays the left fielder couldn't get to in the, in the, in the outfield. And even if he doesn't, he's there to back him up in case one of those guys dropped the ball in the outfield. He'll back up the pitcher. He'll back up home plate. He'll back up anybody he can back up. Even if he's not in the play, he'll be there around the play to help out. And that, quite honestly, is why his teammates love him so much. Because he's always looking to back up the play. He's somebody that they can trust to, to, to be there for them and to have their backs. Even if they miss the ball, they know Simmons is going to be there to get it and gobble it up and get the guy out if it's at all possible. He's just so much fun to play, to watch play. And, and, and the cool thing about baseball, and some of you guys are baseball fans, some of you aren't, and I get that. But the cool thing about baseball is that in baseball, like consistency is something you can measure, right? Um, uh, if you can trust a player or not, you can, you can look at a set of numbers. You can look at data. You can see everything these guys do is calculated and measured and assigned a numeric value. And you can find out about each player, whether it's a player that is consistent and whether he's somebody you can trust offensively or defensively or in any aspect of the game. In baseball, consistency and trust is something that's, that's pretty easy to measure. And then because of that, it's pretty easy to predict. But in life... You know this. In life, it's not quite that easy. In life, it's not always that easy. Because if we're honest, we struggle as a people with consistency. And we struggle as a people with trust. It's very hard for us, even in this room sometimes, to trust other people. It's, it's, it's hard for us, even in this room, to expect the people around us to be consistent. And to know that what we're going to get with people. 
We have a hard time with that sometimes. Uh, and, 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 and you know this, uh, have you ever done, um, maybe if you were at a retreat or a camp, or maybe you even did this as a part of like some kind of office thing at work, uh, if you did a, like a team building exercise with your staff, you ever done the trust fall? You know, this thing where you, uh, you put somebody over here and they have their back to you, and then you're behind them and they've got to fall back and you've got to catch them. Have you ever done this before? Um, it's a lot of fun to do sometimes uh, it's with people you trust. <laughs> with people you don't trust, it's a little frightening. Because what you're doing is you're falling back and it's their job to catch you. It's their job to make sure that they're there to catch you. And, and if you do it one time, even if you're afraid and they catch you, then all of a sudden it's fun because you can do it again and you know they'll catch you and then you can do it again. But as soon as they miss... <laughs> As soon as they, as soon as something happens, they're distracted, they weren't paying attention, or maybe they weren't ready, and they fall, and you don't catch them, guess what? There is no more trust there, (laughs) and they are not going, they're not going to do that again for you. And, And that's because some of you, just like some of us, we've all experienced this. We've all experienced broken trust. I thought it'd be fun this week as part of our next step, if you want to help us out again on social media, is to, uh, to maybe take a picture with your family. This is kind of our at-home series, and, and if you haven't yet, uh, make sure you stop by the at-home center on the way out today and, and get a launch kit as we kind of talk about what does faith at home look like and what does it mean to put, put God on first at home. But I thought it might be fun to take a picture of maybe you and your kids or you with your family um, doing the trust fall and, and then just hashtag that with trust first, with who's on first at Riverside CFC. That's true on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and we'll share some of those pictures next week. What's, what's really interesting about trust is that when it's broken, it's really hard to regain. And if you've ever been a victim, if you've ever been a victim of trust that was broken, you know that this is true that it breaks something inside of you. That broken trust breaks us. Broken trust breaks us. So what, what do we do? Well, this is an honest question. What do we do as people who call ourselves followers of Jesus? What do we do when trust is broken? What do we do when our trust is broken? Because when our trust is broken... It breaks something inside of us, and it makes it really hard to ever trust again. And some of you have had your trust broken by people, and if you're honest, you would say that maybe you've had your trust broken by God. And it, and it, and it puts forth a question that we have to kind of come to grips with is, what do we do when our trust is broken? You know, it's not lost to me that we're in the middle of an of a, of a election year, and I'm not saying anything about it except for the fact that I think there's a pretty low trust value when it comes between us and those who are running. And it's, it's just that reality that, that even in our culture, we have a real trust issue with leadership and with people around us. But it's, it's a big question. What do we do as followers of Jesus when our trust is broken? And, and, and that's maybe why I love this story that we're going to look at today. Uh, if you want to open up your Bibles or open up your apps or look online, whatever you want to do to, to Mark chapter 2, this may be one of the most famous stories about Jesus. You've probably heard it a thousand times before. But I want us to read it again today because it's, it, it speaks to this issue of trust. And what do we do when our trust is broken? And what do we do with this whole idea of trust? And the story is found in Mark 2. And it's a story about, about Jesus and about some friends that had an interaction with him. And in Mark 2, verse 1, we find this story. It goes like this. When Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors 
that there was no more room, even outside the door. Like everybody is coming to hear and have an interaction with, to see Jesus. Like news has spread about this guy. And people are saying, I mean, there's no Instagram yet. There's no Twitter yet. I don't know if you knew that, but it didn't exist back then. And so news is spreading just through word of mouth and Jesus is going viral. I mean, to this point in the story, people have heard him teach, they've heard him preach and they're saying things like, we've never heard anybody like this before. Have you heard how he speaks? Have you heard what he says? We've never heard anyone speak with this kind of authority or or talk this way about God. And then they've seen what he's been able to do. Uh, to this point in the story, Jesus has already performed miracles. He's already healed people who were sick and, and restored their health. He's already cast out an evil spirit. They've seen people who are literally possessed, set free from demonic possession. They have seen what Jesus has done. They have heard what he has done. And they want to come and they want to see for themselves. And they want to hear for themselves this man, Jesus. And literally, the house is so packed. Like every window is full of faces. The door frames are all packed with people. There is no way that anyone else can get in. The tickets are sold out, you know? Nobody else can get in to see what Jesus is doing. And and this isn't the message for today, but it made me think as I just even read this first part of the story. What first first attracted you to Jesus? You think about that. What was it? You're here today because at some point along your journey, something drew you to Jesus. And I'm wondering, what, what was that? What was that that first attracted you, drew you in to Jesus? Some of you have been following Jesus for a a long time, a lot of years. And I'm wondering, what was it that first attracted you to Jesus? Some of you, some of you, maybe maybe it hasn't been that long. You just started your journey a few days ago or a few weeks ago or maybe just a few years ago. What what was it that first attracted you to Jesus? Some of you are probably just checking them out. Some of you are probably in the room and and, and you you made it through the rain and you got here today and and you're not really sure who Jesus is or what he's all about, but you're, you're kicking the tires. You're trying to figure out what it's all about. Something is drawing you to him. I wonder what it is. I, I don't know the answer to that question for you, but I, I think this is true, that when, when, when you come to, to see what Jesus can do and you, you come to hear and believe the words that he says, when you, when you begin to figure out that Jesus really is who he says he is, you can't help but be drawn to the guy. And what's also true is is when you you believe Jesus is who he says he is and he can do what he says he can do, he can't help but bring your friends along so they can also experience his presence and his power in their life. And that's exactly what happens in this story. Let's keep reading. While he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. Now, they couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd. We know that already. So here's what they did. They dug a hole through the roof above his head. And then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. Now, this is a bit of a crazy story, isn't it? Uh, You've probably heard this before and you've probably read this before. But if you just stop and pause, this is extremely bizarre. (laughs) These guys are bringing a paralyzed man, their friend to Jesus. These four friends are carrying their friend to Jesus because they've heard what he can do and they want to see if they can help their friend. And they get there and they see the house is packed so that one of them has a harebrained idea. I wonder which one it was. Says, hey, I got an idea. They must've been teenagers. They said, let's go to the roof and we'll dig a hole in the roof and we'll let him down through the roof. This is the house of a stranger, by the way. They don't know this guy. They don't know who he is but they're gonna dig a hole in this man's roof. And this isn't just some small hole. It's, it's, it's gotta be big enough to lower a man on a mat down through the roof, all right? So, so this is gonna 
basically destroy the roof of this house. It's going to be, like, what, about six feet long, maybe two, three feet wide. They're going to destroy the man's roof. And the roof back in those days, as you might imagine, was made out of mud and thatch. So they're peeling it away. And meanwhile, like debris is falling on Jesus and the crowd below. They're looking up. and They're like, what in the world is going on as they're lowering this man before Jesus? I just can't even get my mind around what this, what this would have been like. Verse 5. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My child, your sins are forgiven. Now, I'll be honest with you. At this point in the story, I get really confused, and I have lots of questions. Are you with me? Uh, This man is lowered before Jesus. It's obviously uh, that he's paralyzed. And Jesus looks at the man after he digs all the mud and thatch out of his hair, and he says, Your sins are forgiven. What? I mean, obviously the man is here for his paralyzed problem, not a sin problem. Why is Jesus forgiving the man's sins when he came to get his legs fixed, you know? And then Mark says that that Jesus looked at their faith, at the faith of the four friends that let him down. And based on their faith, he forgave his sins. What's up with that? I I don't don't understand that either. I mean, if anything, he should have forgiven their sins for their faith. At other places we read things like Jesus uh, forgives people and he says things like your faith has saved you. What did this man do to deserve to deserve his sins forgiven. Did he do anything at all? He just showed up on a mat. He was lowered by four friends that he somehow trusted to let him down through a roof and then he gets his sins forgiven. And Jesus just ignores his legs in the process. I mean, it makes me wonder, why was the man even paralyzed? Was it a physical problem? Was it a sin problem? We know this is true, don't we? That sin always paralyzes us. Sometimes life paralyzes us, but sin always paralyzes us. And it makes me wonder, too, that how many times do you and I come to Jesus with our physical problems, with our worries, with our concerns, with our issues, with what's going on in our life? And, and, and the whole time he's just saying, hey, hey, hey I get all that. But, but until I deal with your sin problem, it doesn't even matter if you can walk or not. I think Jesus knew that before he could ever do anything else, he had to help this man spiritually. And maybe the same is true for you and me. Before he can help us in any way, maybe we need to deal with our sin problem first. If you have questions, take, um, take solace in this. You're not alone. Verse 6. Some of the teachers of the religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, they've got questions. What is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Verse 8. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking. Now, they didn't say this out loud, Right? They're just thinking this, and Jesus, in like a divine, supernatural, God-only kind of way, he's like, I know what you're thinking. And so he asked them, like he responds verbally to the questions they have in their head. That's kind of scary, right? Why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? So I'm going to prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. And then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And listen to what happens next. The man jumped up. He didn't like struggle. Like, he jumps up. He grabs his mat, and he walked out through the stunned onlookers. And they were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, we have never, ever seen anything like this before. Wow. I wonder what would have happened if this man who had been paralyzed 
had refused to let his four friends take him to have an encounter with Jesus that day. You got to think, I don't know whose idea it was, but you got to think for this poor guy, this was going to be humiliating. If you know anything about the day and the time and the culture that, 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 this, that this man lived in, you know that it was extremely humiliating, first of all, to be paralyzed. In fact, in that day and that time and that culture, you were literally viewed as worthless. Why? Because you were paralyzed. You could not do anything physically to bring income in to help support your family. So literally, you're worthless. Like in that culture, you're worthless. Your best bet is to sit by some city gate, some public place, where passerbys are going to cross in front of your face and beg for money, hoping that somehow you can bring in enough to maybe support your own self. But it's going to be difficult. And not only that, but there was a thought in that day and time that if you suffered from some sort of illness or physical deformity or paralysis like this, that is somehow connected to your sin. Like God, God knows you, and, and because of what you've done in your life, you're going to be cursed for that because of some crime you committed. And, and so the result of, of, of your sin is the fact that you are paralyzed or there's some sort of spiritual condition that preceded this physical condition, and you've been cursed by God, and that's why you're paralyzed. And so for these four friends to get this guy, their, their buddy on a mat, and walk him to a place in front of all these people that he's probably seen a thousand times before, and they have never stopped to give him a dime. He's been the one holding up the sign, asking for money, and they have not even acknowledged his existence. This is going to be humiliating for them to bring him through that crowd And then to go before this guy, Jesus, who is at least a rabbi, and maybe, just maybe, people are talking about he could be from God. He might even be the Messiah. So you're going to bring me before somebody that's from God, the same God who probably cursed me and gave me this paralysis because of some sin in my life. I don't even know what I did. But that same God has cursed me. You want me to take me before this, this guy who's a messenger from God? No thanks. No thanks. This is both humiliating and embarrassing and shameful on every single level. No thank you. But somehow, by some amazing sequence of events that we don't even know about, these four friends did for this man what he couldn't do for himself. And as a result of their faith and their action, this guy walked home forgiven that day. And as I read this story, it just makes me wonder, who do you call? Who do you call? Who are the four friends that you would call when crisis comes and hits in your life? You know, we all need people like this. We need people to back us up. We need people who have our backs. We need those people that when crisis hits, uh, they come and they surround us. These are the four friends that can, that can carry us when we don't have the strength to stand. Who do you call? Who do you call when crisis hits? I remember about five years ago, about five years ago, our daughter Emma was born. And we were living in Atlanta at the time. And um, Alicia had some complications with, with that whole deal of, of, of delivering uh, sweet Emma. And there was a moment, I'll just be honest with you, without going into all the details, that we were a little scared, a little worried about things and how they might turn out. And probably like you, I've, I've got a short list of people that I call in the middle of a crisis. So I picked up the phone, I called one of, my, one of my best friends in the whole world, and I said, hey, just want you to know what's going on with us. I need you to pray. And I knew this, this guy was an incredible friend and a, a person of deep prayer. And so we prayed on the phone and 
we hung up and that was kind of the end of it. And I went back to the hospital room. I spent the night there with Alicia that night in the hospital. And the next morning, about 6 a.m., this guy walks in. Now, he lived in a different city, like four or five hours away. But after we hung up the phone, he got his kids to bed, and he drove through the night to walk in that room that morning with a cup of coffee to check on me and Alicia and our family and to see how we were doing. And I'll tell you, I'll never forget it. I'll never, ever forget it. And you probably have stories like that, too, where there was someone when you were in the middle of the crisis, and you didn't know how to pray, and they showed up, and they stepped into the gap for you when you didn't have the strength to stand. And this is why it's so important. This is why at Riverside especially, we want everyone possible to be in some sort of home group or class or group of some sort that exists at this church, a ladies group, a men's group, or whatever group, because we know that there are going to be times, and you know this too, when life hits. And you need people around you that when life hits, they can hit their knees for you and they can pray. And they can usher you in to the presence of God. You need people you can trust to carry you when you don't have the strength to stand. This is what you and I, this is what we need. We need this, th- these people in our lives that we trust that they will have our backs and they will carry us through when we don't know what to do. Who are those four friends for you? Do you have people like this in your life who can carry you through those times? Because life is going to hit. Life is going to hit. And there are times when you and I don't have the strength to stand or the faith to put one foot in front of the other. And we need those people who can come around us and lift us up and carry us into the presence of Jesus. And I'm guessing that there are probably two groups in the room today. There could be more. There are probably some of us in the room that we need to ask ourselves this question. Like, who, who do you need to carry into the presence of Jesus today? Who do, who do you need to rally around? Who do you need? You probably need to grab two or three of your friends and say, I know about, about this friend, and we need to lift them up right now. We need to carry them into the presence of Jesus. And I want to ask you if, if that's you today, think about that. Like, who is it? Maybe you haven't thought about this lately, but maybe you need to think about it today for the first time in a long time. Who is it that you need to grab some friends and rally around another friend who you know is in need right now and carry them because they don't have the strength to stand? Sometimes when I pray, maybe this is something you could do in your own spiritual life if you like this idea, but sometimes, sometimes when I pray for a person, I don't even use words. Have you done this? Like what I like to do when I know someone's really struggling or really needing um, God's help, is just to go find a quiet place where I can close my eyes and quiet my mind and turn off all the devices and just get really still and really quiet. And then I like to, I like to just visualize them in my mind's eye and just see their face. And then I want to grab them by the hand without even speaking a word. And, it, and just in my own mind's eye, I just imagine myself walking them out of this dark place towards this marvelous light where Jesus is. And when we get there, I just imagine myself, after having ushered them into the presence of Jesus, taking their hand and putting it in his, and then walking out of the room and getting out of the way. And allowing them to be in the presence of Jesus where they can find the help and the healing and the forgiveness that they need in their time of need. And some of us, we need to take on this posture of prayer where we don't even use a lot of words, but we just... We just usher people 
into the presence of the only one in the universe who can help them. We need to, we need to be the kind of church, maybe we can even change our name from Riverside to Four Friends Church, where we just practice taking people who we know need the touch and the healing and the love and the forgiveness of Jesus and walking them into his presence and leaving them there where Jesus can do for them what we don't even know what, how to do. And, and there's something in this story that I think is really fascinating and really amazing that, that there's something about the faith and the action of friends who bring others into the presence of Jesus that activates forgiveness for them and healing for them that they couldn't do for themselves. And I don't know if you've ever thought about that before, but this has got to be true for us as a church here at Riverside, that we need to, we need to grab hold of that. That we need to be the kind of people that, that look around and see the other people that, that don't have the, the faith or the ability to, 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 to get there on their own and take them by the hand and carry them on a mat and, and in prayer sometimes just deliver them, usher them into the presence of Jesus and knowing and believing that somehow in, in God's economy, our faith for them can usher them into his presence where, they, where then he can heal them and he can forgive them. But maybe today, maybe today that person is, is you. And maybe the question you need to ask is this. Who do you need to ask to carry you to Jesus today? Because no doubt, there are some of us in the room. And, and I want to let you know that this is true of this church. Like, this is a loving church. This is a safe place. And, and I want you to know that this is true, that, that, that if we know about it, we want to help. And I don't know if you've let anybody in lately. I don't know if anybody knows what current struggle or crisis you're going through. But let me just kind of make a guarantee right now that if you'll let us in, if you'll let us know, we would love nothing more than to rally around you and carry you into the presence of Jesus where you can find the, the help and the forgiveness and the healing that you need today. Like this is who we want to be. And I'm not saying we're perfect. I don't say we always get it right, but this is who we want to be. We want to be a people that when you're struggling and when you need help, we want to be there for you to carry you into the presence of Jesus. We want to be there for you. And seniors, you're going to need people like this in your life. You know, you're getting ready to go out to a whole new phase of life. You need people, you need friends, you know, that carry you towards Jesus, not away from Jesus. We all need these friends who are always in motion towards Jesus and carrying us along with them towards the marvelous light that is his presence and towards this place where, where he resides. And, and that's the kind of people we want to be. In 1988, the Dodgers were playing the A's in the World Series, October. It's game one. Anybody remember this moment? Dodger fans, there probably aren't any in the room, but Dodger fans would say this is one of the greatest moments in the history of baseball for them. It was game one of the World Series, October night. The A's have the lead, four to three. It's the bottom of the ninth inning. There's two outs. They're one out away from winning game one in the World Series, and as you know, when you win game one, it really propels you to win the whole thing. So they're, they're really hoping for this. Dennis Eckersley is on the mound. He's a closer. He's got a fastball like lightning, and he's looking to shut it down. And Tommy Lasorda, the manager for the Dodgers, looks down his bench, and he's got to call somebody in to pinch hit. It's the ninth hole, or the nine hole. He's got to get somebody to come up and, and to take that at bat. And he looks down his bench, and, and there's one guy that dressed out, but really shouldn't have even dressed out because both of his legs were injured. Like he could barely stand, much less walk, much less run, much less swing a bat. But he made the call and he called Kirk Gibson to come up to the plate. And he comes up to the plate and you could see as he got up there to the plate, his legs are shaking, not because he's nervous, 
because he's in such pain. Eckersley starts pitching away, and there's a guy on first, by the way, and about three or four pitches in, that guy's still second. So now we got a man on second in scoring position, and all that Kirk Gibson's got to do is just get a base hit. If he can get a base hit, chances are that guy can round third and get home, and they can at least tie the game. He gets two strikes. One more strike, and that's the last out, and the game is over. He battles away. He works it up to a full count. It's three and two. Three balls, two strikes, two outs. Really one pitch left, probably. And he steps up to the plate. Guy's on second. He's the tying run. Kirk will be the winning run. And right before Dennis winds up to make the, the next pitch, he calls time and he steps out. And you can just see he's just trying to catch his breath. He's not scared. He's not nervous. He, he loves this game. He's confident in his abilities, but he's just in such pain because both of his legs are just shaking from, from the pain he's feeling in both, in both legs. He steps back up and Dennis delivers a fastball like you've never seen. And somehow, you remember this moment? Kirk swings the bat, hits that ball, home run. Dodgers win the game, go on to win the World Series. And I think about that moment. A friend was reminding me of that story this week. And I think about that moment, I think, what kind of faith, what kind of trust did Lasorda have in Kirk Gibson to call his number and to call his name to step up to the plate, even though he was injured? How many times was he, was he second-guessing his, his decision in, in, as he sat down there in the dugout with two strikes, thinking we're, we're one strike away, one out away from losing this game, and everybody after in the press conference is going to ask me, why did you send an injured player to the plate? But if you go back and you watch the clip today on YouTube, you'll see as soon as Gibson hits that home run, he's charged up, he's rounding the bases. He looks like an old man hobbling around with a, you know, with a cane, but Tommy Lasorda is like jumping up with both arms in the air because it worked. Gibson did it. Home run. We win. And then I wondered this. When it's the bottom of the ninth in the game that is your life and you got two outs, who are you going to call? Who do you call to step up and go to bat for you? And what I want is for us to be the kind of church that we don't have to look very far around the room. And there are men and there are women in this place that we can call on to go to bat for us when we can't go to bat for ourselves. Church, if you would, please stand. I can't help but imagine that when Jesus was standing there that day in that room and he looked up and he saw the, the thatch and the mud kind of falling down as these guys were peeling back the, the shingles and then the light started breaking through that Jesus probably just smiled and thought, huh, huh, what a great idea, you know? In fact, I remember a time when somebody else dug a hole in a roof so that he could come down and help his friends. Because Jesus came down from heaven to earth. And he's the one you can trust. And he's here to help his friends. I want to ask our shepherds, if they would, and their wives to make their way around the room. We can't end a, a message like this today without saying this out loud, that, that if you need someone right now in this moment during this song to usher you into the presence of God and just to, to help you in any way. Let me tell you, these men and these women, they, they are faithful friends and they would love nothing more than to carry you for a moment and to usher you into the presence of Jesus. We probably can't fix your problems, but we serve a God who can. A God who came down from heaven to earth, 
who dug a hole in, in a roof and made a way to come down to be among us and to help us. And if we can help you in any way, we want to pray with you today. And if you don't know this Jesus we keep talking about and you want to get to know him, we would love nothing more than to, to talk to you about that too. So you can begin this long walk with Jesus in the same direction. Because when it's the bottom of the ninth and there's two outs, let me tell you, you want him on your side. You want him on your side. And we'd love nothing more than to help you begin that relationship with Jesus. Let's think about that and let's pray together as we sing these words.